Good morning. Next Sunday will be the, uh, the final psalm of the Psalms of Ascent. The Psalms of Ascending going up to Mount Zion, to Jerusalem, to the temple. And uh, today we're in Psalm 133. And I'm going to ask you to turn to Psalm 133. We're going to read the whole thing all the way to the end. Nothing will stop us. We'll just keep going. So let me read it to us. A song of a sense of David. Behold, how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity. It is like the precious oil on the head running down on the beard, on the beard of Aaron, running down on the collar of his robe. It's like the dew of Hermon, which falls on the mountain of Zion. For there the Lord has commanded the blessing, life forevermore. I pastored in San Francisco, a church there, for 10 years. And during that time, outside of planned breaks uh, from delivering, giving the message on Sundays. I never missed a Sunday. Sometimes there were surgeries and I preached uh, the message on crutches with a cast on. Sometimes I had a fever or a cold and although I didn't want to infect anybody, I preached right through it and then collapsed later. There was never a Sunday that I missed uh, for such minor things, but one, there was this one Sunday where late Saturday night I woke up after going to bed and I was violently ill. I mean violently, and I thought, well, in the morning if I'm better, but I, I remained sick and couldn't stray. Some of you know what I'm imagining. and. Uh, so I called uh, someone that I had been training and asked if he would speak that Sunday morning on short notice, and he agreed. And I was teaching a class before our worship service, and I had to find a substitute, but I couldn't. And we were going through uh, this book, Dr. Larry Crabb's Inside Out, Real change is possible if you're willing to start from the inside out. And I had the notes prepared, and it was going to be a discussion on the reading for that Sunday. And I turned to Shelley and asked if she would fill in, if she would conduct or facilitate the class and conduct the discussion. And sheepish, sheepishly, she, she gave in and agreed. 
When she got home, after the service, I eagerly, eagerly asked her how the Sunday went and how did the class go? And she said, well, um, it started a little rocky because when I explained why I was going to conduct the class because you were violently ill and unable to do it and I would be conducting the discussion time, Judy and Grant stood up and walked out. That really hurt. I mean, the act itself, the timing of it, they wouldn't tolerate Shelley conducting the discussion. Shelley was shamed. The pastor was shamed. In a way, the class was shamed. It was like you either all walk out or you're all wrong. Can you imagine filling in for me and then having that happen and trying to continue, trying to concentrate, trying to focus on the subject of the book, which is spiritual growth and spiritual maturity? What did I do? What would you do? What should we do? Psalm 133 speaks to questions like these. It speaks to questions not just of a time years ago. It speaks to questions we have today. Not just what would you do, but what should I do? And more importantly, what should we do? Psalm 133 verse 1 has one message. In fact, it's the thrust, it's the focus. It's really the message of the whole psalm. Dwell in unity. That's the message. Dwell in unity. It says, dwell in unity because it is so good. It is so sweet. In verse 2 and 3, just the first part of verse 3, but all of 2 and the first part of 3, the psalm supports this plea to unity, to dwell in unity. It supports it with what you could call our proofs or incentives. I mean, okay, I hear you, but I'm not quite there. Well, listen to this. <laughs> this will push you over the edge. This is an incentive. Here's a proof. Unity is like the aromatic anointing of Aaron. It's like that fragrant, costly, ungent 
that oil, that ointment just dripping down not just on the head, but through the beard. It's so lavish. It smells so good. It's so expensive to have it poured out, dripping down. On the very first priest over God's people, the priest over the faith of God's people, It's like the dew of Hermon, the tallest peak, 9,100 feet. On a clear day, you can see it from different parts of Israel. 200 miles to the south, 200 miles to the south is Mount Zion at 2,400 feet. It's like that dew on snowy, gray-haired Hermon reaching all the way over the country and dusting with sweet moisture Zion and the people from the beginning or the top to the bottom of the nation. What a beautiful image. And then in the last part of verse 3, this is the closer. This is the punchline. This is the mic drop. There. See that? There. There in Zion. There in Jerusalem. There where the temple stands. There is unity. Just as we saw a couple of Sundays ago in Psalm 128, which in verse 1 and verse 5 said, Blessed, blessed are all who fear the Lord, all who walk in his ways. May the Lord bless you from Zion all the days of your life. Because life is not just numerical, it's qualitative as well. Will you meet me there? Will you come to Zion? I'm going to Zion. Will you come too? Can we meet at Zion? That's where the Lord is. That's where unity is. That's where life is. That's where if we dwell... There is life and life between us. That's the big idea. That's what it's celebrating. That's what it's elevating and calling us to elevate in our hearts and in our lives. But here's the beautiful thing. That promise has been expanded. That promise has been revitalized. In fact, that promise, the promise of Psalm 133, in fact, the focus of all the Psalms of Ascent, in fact, the focus of the pilgrimage to go 
to gather, to travel, to face those hardships, to go and be together in the Lord. The focus of all of that is rejuvenated, revitalized. In fact, it's resurrected in Jesus Christ. Because all the promise of this song is new and improved in Jesus Christ. It becomes more real, more available, more accessible, more pertinent to our daily lives. It's not just at the three great festivals of the calendar year. It's every day, every day, every day that we are to walk in the power of the Holy Spirit that has been poured out on our lives because Jesus Christ not only died but rose. And in rising, he gives us new life and life everlasting, and it is located in him. And we're not far and we're not near. We're always approximate to what God wants to be doing in our lives when we can meet in the Lord, but it always and fundamentally becomes a choice of the will, a desire to walk in his ways, a desire to follow him, a desire to draw near to his heart and let his life, his breath, be our life and our breath. We sing these songs. And we feel the joy and the exhilaration of what they proclaim. And it means so much more when we do it together. There's a sense of we're in this together. And that is rejuvenating. But the power of it, the reality of it, the truth of it, that's ours, whether we're here or there. When we have a heart of pilgrimage. Meet me in Zion is realized when we meet in Jesus. Meet me in the Lord. There's unity. Meet me in the Lord. I want to school you just a moment. 1 Peter chapter 2. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 5 and 6. Some of you are flipping in your Bibles. Good for you. See, Peter says, See, I lay a stone in Zion, a chosen and precious cornerstone, and the one who trusts in him will never be put to shame. That's all applied to Jesus. Hebrews chapter 12, verses 22 through 24. But you have come to Mount Zion. You have come, he goes on to say, at the, at the zenith of what he's writing here in verses 22, 23, and 24, he says, you have come to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, 
and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. That new covenant is the New Testament. So he's contrasting the new covenant with the old covenant. In Ephesians chapter 2, verses 11 through 22, he starts off in verses 11 and 12 by talking about how there's been this division and how we've been on the outside looking in. We're the uncircumcision, but the true people of God are the circumcision. And then he says in verse 13, but now... In Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For, here's the reason, Jesus himself is our peace who has made us, that is, Jew and Gentile, covenant people and non-covenant people, all people, in other words, a new race of people. He has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances for a reason that he might create in himself one new human race in place of the two. So and what is the reason for making peace? And that we might reconcile, be reconciled both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And then he says, he came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. And through him, we both have access to the one spirit, to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, the household of God, built on the foundation. Now, what's he talking about? The temple. See, this is all Zion. This is all temple. This is all covenant. This is all law language that governed and distinguished the people of God in the Old Testament. And now it's all fallen to all people in Christ. And listen to the way he talks about this new people. They're built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being that cornerstone. This is a spiritual temple in whom the whole structure being joined together, fitted together, grows into a holy temple in the Lord. The church is a visible temple, you see. Not of stone, but of Christ-like living of Christ-governed life, of Christ-like disposition, attitude, outlook, living, power. Verse 22, in him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. We are this new temple. 
In Ephesians 4, just a couple more chapters in that same letter, he says this on unity. I urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called. I mean, is there a higher calling? There is no higher calling. There is no fourth race. There were Jews, there were Gentiles, and then there are those who belong to God, the third race. God would like the whole world in that race. It's a third race, a new race, because it's a resurrected race. It is a race that is filled with the resurrection power of Jesus Christ through the Holy Spirit, which he poured out on his church. There is no church without the Holy Spirit. There is no temple without the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is the down payment on the life to come, the fulfillment of this new race which he is creating in Jesus Christ, which is the apex and fulfillment of everything God did in the, what it is chronicled in the Old Testament. That's a high calling. That's what you belong to in Christ. And he says, we are to walk in a manner worthy of that calling to which we've been called with all humility and gentleness and patience. Humility and gentleness and patience. Bearing with one another in love. Eager to maintain the unity of the spirit. Maintain the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. You see, he says, there is one body, one spirit, just as you were called in one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and father of all who is over all and through all and in all. In 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 10, 11, and 12. And by the way, do you realize that so many of Paul's letters, maybe with the exception of Romans, all of his letters were, were written that Christians might grow in their faith and their understanding of who they are in Christ. And those letters are usually generated out of difficulties and hardships because he's trying to Bring the people into the unity that is truly ours in Christ. He says, I appeal to you in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ that all of you agree that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. And of course, he's contrasting this with people who are saying, I follow Paul or I follow Cephas or I follow Apollos. Or some, uh, I follow Jesus. Of course, of course you do. How about what Jesus himself prayed in John chapter 17, verses 20 through 23. The whole chapter is the prayer of Jesus. But in these verses, listen to what Jesus prays. That, that they, who are the they? That you, you and me, were the they. He's talking to the Father. He's the Son, talking to the Father. He's, Father, he says, I pray that they may be one as you and I are one. 
that they may be one as we are one, so that the world may believe that you have sent them. Oh, my Lord. Does the world know that Jesus sent us? How will they know, he says, that we are one? Not that we're right. Not that we win. But that we are one. And that they may know, the world may know. What will they know? By our unity, by our oneness. They will know, Jesus says, that you love them even as you love me. But you see, that's not what I'm getting out there. It's like Jesus loves me more than he loves you. And that doesn't create oneness, doesn't create unity. Or there's this attitude that I'm waiting for you to get your act together. But that's not what any of this is talking about. This, this is the Spirit of God through his word speaking to each one of us. I don't get up here and talk about what you have to do as much as I have to be doing this. Or I couldn't get up here and even talk to you. I mean, wouldn't that be arrogant? I'm calling all of us to this because this is what the Lord, this is what Jesus stands for. This is what the new covenant stands for. This is what Christianity is supposed to look like. And I'm not seeing it. And it's grievous. And what have we gained for the way we've been doing it? What can we show for it? In 1 John 1, 7, John calls unity koinonia, the Greek word. It's translated in a number of different ways, but here we commonly translate it fellowship. He says, and then he actually defines fellowship. That's the beauty of it. Here's what koinonia is. If you walk in the light and I walk in the light, we have fellowship. What's the light? It's in the Lord. Meet me in the Lord. Meet me in the Lord. What does that mean? It means that's where I'm headed. That's what I'm going to be trying to do. Let's meet there. Let's go to Jerusalem. Let's go to Zion. Let's go to Jesus. It's all one and the same. It's all what God wants. Unity. But it's created when we go to the Lord. Not to our servant, but to the one we serve. Unity comes when we meet in Jesus. It calls for humility before the Lord. Unity must be mutual. But someone has to be the first to say, here I am, Lord, start with me. Unity in the Lord begins as everything begins. Everything redemptive, everything that Jesus does begins with his grace and love. Meet me in the Lord. There's unity. The psalmist here says in verse 1, what could be better? I could elaborate on the psalm, but I just want to emphasize verse 1. He says, what could be better? In verses 2 and 3, what could be more beautiful? 
And he pictures a nation united in worship, but he uses the figurehead of the first high priest Aaron being anointed. In other words, the foundation of their faith. And then he looks at the land in terms as if it were a body laying prone with Hermon, the hairy, hoary, gray head up in the north and down all the way to the feet of the land. And there, the most important place is Zion, where he calls in unity the whole nation, all the tribes, all the peoples to unite there. And even Hermon, high, high up, bows in honor to Zion. Those are snapshots of choice that God has made and where his blessing is to be found and where oneness is to be found. Do you know when I came to grace, my My resume, right at the top, said leadership without tears. Leadership without tears. That's leadership that's committed to centering our focus on Jesus Christ. It's not about my ego or yours. It's about us joining hands and moving higher together. It's about discipleship. Everything's about discipleship. You're either discipling unto the Lord or away from the Lord. What could be better? What could be more beautiful? What could be a higher blessing than to pilgrimage in the Lord? And in in the New Testament, that's walking in in the Spirit, having the mind of Christ, walking after the Holy Spirit, being filled with the Spirit, the daily pilgrimage, because the Spirit is everything. That's the practice of the Christian life. So what did I do about Grant and Judy? In a very real way, I did what we're talking about today. I went and asked them to meet me in the Lord. In the Lord, there's unity. I made an appointment and I drove to their house. And before I got to their house, I had a talk with the Lord and I forgave them for what they did, which I felt was wrong. What I felt it was divisive. Some of you may feel that that's right. Got to take your stand. Got to be doctrinally right. Can't veer to one side or the other, but in the process, you're destroying the church and you're dividing his church. And we feel good about being right and about making others feel wrong. That's not the spirit of God in Jesus Christ. That's not the love that reached down and saved you in Christ or forgave your sins. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. While we were yet sinners. So before I went, I forgave them. And when I did see them, I gave them a chance to forgive me. And I listened to why they walked out. And I explained the decision that I made. And we talked about how we could have handled it better. We talked about that together. And how we could have served the higher interests of God's love. Because we agreed 
that the doctrine of God's love is the highest and most important doctrine of the entire New Testament. We agreed it eclipses other doctrines. And when I left, we were in unity. We were friends. We were brothers and sisters in Christ. What did I accomplish? It's really kind of hard to measure. In the Lord, we sow more than we reap, and you need to know that. You should be sowing more than you reap. We can't always see the dividends. We can't always tally the sum. That's, that's the life, that's the outlook of our global economy. That's the outlook of free enterprise and capitalism. Christ is not capitalism. It's grace. It's generosity without return. And we have to give and pour out and seek the good things whether anybody goes with us. And we have to do it lavishly and leave the results and leave the returns and leave the bottom line to him and realize, realize that because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, there is going to be a return. And it is not the incentive to doing what's right. The incentive to doing what's right is that he is Lord, risen, and empowering the church by faith. Later when, uh, you know, I... Like I said, I don't know all that I accomplished, but I do know this. I showed them grace and love as I have received it from Jesus Christ. I showed them the gospel as I seek to live it out, and I showed them who my Lord is. And by the time I left, we all shared that. I showed them that I valued them, that I wanted them to be my friends and not my enemies. And I discipled them rather than despised them. And when we left after 10 years, they gave me a big binder of letters and cards. And in them was a letter from Judy. Grant isn't cited. He writes in Braille. So I wouldn't have understood what he had to say to me. But Judy said it for the two of them. And she talked about our friendship. And she talked mostly but she didn't even bring up doctrine. She talked about our friendship and how she didn't think that I would continue picking her up for home Bible study and driving her there and back and the wonderful conversations that we had and enjoyed together. She thought I would give up, and I didn't. Hurt people hurt people. Have you ever heard that? Hurt people hurt people. Loving hurt people heals hurt people. But the healing begins with Jesus because you're hurt and I'm hurt. And we have to constantly be healed by Jesus so that we can heal hurt people. Imagine if I hadn't gone. 
It wasn't just about fixing them. Because I went, I was healed too. I grew in my faith. And we must use faith for it to be faith. It's not faith if you do not use it. But when you use it, you grow in it. And you use it again and again. God reinforced my belief that God's love and grace do bring life. It's not enough for me to sit back and say, that is great. God's love and grace, it, it brings life. But does it bring life in me? And do I bring that life to others? It showed me again that faults are just unmet needs and that God's love looks beyond our faults to meet our needs. And I learned again that I sleep better. I even sleep soundly when I do it God's way. And we can all do that. We can all do that. Let's pray. Heavenly, Heavenly Father, we love you. We need you. We all desire to be that better version that you have for us, which is Jesus, our Lord. He's our model. He's our Lord, our Savior, our power, our encouragement, our healer. We turn to you this week, Lord, and we pray for your direction and guidance, encouragement for everything we need to be your people. And we praise you in Jesus' name. And all of God's people said, amen.